Welcome, everyone, to episode 176 of Some Like It, Scott. I'm your host, Scott Shelton, and on this week's episode, we're seeing just how Gucci-pilled we are, Ryusuke Hamaguchi-pilled, that is, with a review of the Japanese director's three-hour 2021 drama, Drive My Car. Before we get to that, however, with me, as always, I have my co-host, Scott Harvey. Scott, are you feeling like it's time to take a trip to Tokyo? Now I just have Gucci gang in my head. So thank you for that. Um, <laughs> I do. Yeah, I Scott, I'm, I'm doing well. Um, I just want to say up front that I got to see this movie in theaters and I was thinking about it um, yesterday or two days ago because one of my friends was watching it online and they were commenting that, well, the rip that they were watching or whatever wasn't the best quality. Um, so I just want to give a shout out. I'm sure I've mentioned their names many times times on here before but aperture cinema in um, where i live now in winston-salem north carolina um i don't know how i got so lucky because um this is honestly it's probably one of the best indie theaters in the country like certainly for a city the size of winston-salem it is kind of unheard of for it to have an indie theater like of the quality that we have i mean they have they're one of like the few theaters that was chosen to do the sundance satellite screenings which are going to be happening next weekend Um, So that says something. And yeah, I mean, pretty much any movie, you know, any indie movie over the past few years, they've at least had it for like a week. Um, And, you know, I was just thinking about it when I went to see the drive my car that, um, you know, I saw the Florida project there for the first time. I saw Lady Bird there for the first time. Um, I saw a few other movies, you know, that have now gone on to be some of my favorites. So it's a it's a special place for me. And this was another great experience of getting to get see a movie that if I lived, you know, elsewhere, if I again, if I lived somewhere else in the country in like a similar sized city as Winston-Salem, I think the opportunities would be much more limited to, to have seen this movie. So shout out to Aperture. Um, I will always give them love for all the great movie experiences that they've been able to provide. Yeah, it's so funny that we both ended up going, well, not necessarily undergrad for you, but undergrad for me and then law school for you mm-hmm. um, in, ta- in small towns that just randomly had really good indie movie theater. Images Cinema in Williamstown uh, is a you know one screen indie theater that... You know, I don't actually know because I don't ever check their schedule anymore for obvious reasons. Because I don't live in Williamstown, but they have all this type of this type of fare now. I don't know. Aperture has multiple screens, so that gives them a lot more flexibility. Yeah, yeah, exactly. That gives them a lot more flexibility. But it's so it is funny how that happens. And then you and, know, there's not that many of these types of theaters all across the country anymore, especially with COVID. And it's weird too, because like Chattanooga, where we grew up, right? Yeah. You would think that would be the perfect town to have an indie theater like that. And they briefly right? like, had one, right? Well, yeah. Uh, yeah, but it even it wasn't even really showing the same quality of stuff that like is that aperture or right? images, right? That's the one in Williamstown, right? Yeah. Um, even but like we were so, only there in the summer to try to see stuff in the in like the. Well, I was season. always keeping an I was always keeping an eye on what they had, but okay. it wasn't really like you know big new releases like you know they wouldn't have had like the tragedy of Macbeth or red rocket or something like that right it was just like kind of whatever the people who ran the theater just like whatever they felt like showing it seemed like and they only had one screen too right so that was part of it it just wasn't also so what you would those pews yeah it was was weird it was yeah they had like the church pews that's right Um, yeah but yeah like it again chattanooga you would expect that like that would be the type of town that would have you know, an indie theater of the quality of Aperture. But 
didn't work out that way, but it all worked out in the long run. So uh, I'm happy for that. And I'm happy I got to have this experience in a theater because I definitely think this is a, a theater movie for sure. Yeah, this film, I believe it debuted, although maybe it showed somewhere else first at the New York Film Festival. It, at the very least, it did screen at the New York Film Festival. I did not catch it there. I watched his other movie, Rizke's Hamaguchi's other movie this year, Wheel of Fortune and Fantasy at the festival, sort of on a whim. I was offered a, um, a free ticket, actually, and I was like, well, yeah, I mean, I'm not doing anything. I'll go see this movie. I've heard great things about but his work, and he has two films at the festival this year, which is pretty outrageous. Um, so I went and saw that, and I mean, I was completely taken with his style, and I think he has a very distinct style, which we can talk about. I was totally taken with it at that point. Drive My Car had already played, and it wasn't playing again at the festival, so I did not have the opportunity to see it, which was a bummer. But I was able to catch it a few months later at, a, <laughs> at an Academy screening, which is the strangest thing, um, at Lincoln Center. I was offered a ticket to that and got to see it there with a Q&A afterwards, which was amazing. I'm, I'm sure that'll come up as well when we're talking about it, because I think he has some really incredible insight into, into how he goes about making this film. Um, and then got to see it again in the new year when it actually had its full uh, debut at Lincoln Center. So, you know, not a small indie theater by any stretch of the imagination of Lincoln Center. That is a huge indie, indie theater, but I'm also grateful to have that. Um, as well, because though that there did exist an indie theater in Boston, it was not really accessible. It was on the other side of the city for me, not easy to get to. Mm. Never really uh, went to Coolidge Corner is the name of of um, the indie theater in Boston. But um, a lot closer here in New York and glad to have a, a gym like that and the consistency with which they're showing, you know, movies that just aren't getting wide releases is is refreshing to have in case it doesn't a movie doesn't pop up at AMC or. Right, which is happening much more frequently nowadays. So, very true. That is that is um, unfortunately very true, and we'll see how that continues to develop. I guess over the next couple years, next couple months, well, uh, not clear to me exactly what the time horizon is on some of these some of these developments, honestly. But it's not trending in a direction that that I necessarily like, even if I understand at the same time why that is happening. Because the truth is, is that if AMC is showing Drive My Car. No one's gonna go see it at AMC, unfortunately. Yeah. Um, that yeah, I mean, there were the only eight people, I think, at my Saturday night screening of it at Aperture. Now, granted, I think that was half the theater because they put it in the smallest theater, yeah. uh, which has about twenty seats. But because uh, they were showing yeah. like Licorice Pizza or Red Rocket in the big theater, Licorice like, Pizza, yeah. The Tragedy of Macbeth, and yeah, look, all much bigger movies than yeah. I forget are. what the other one was. But anyway, we can get off of this topic now because it's not what we're here to talk about. As I already mentioned, we are here to talk today about one of Ryusuke Hamaguchi's two 2021 films, and that is the Japanese language road drama Drive My Car. Written and directed by Hamaguchi and adapted in part from a Haruki Murakami short story of the same name, Drive My Car stars Hidetoshi Nishijima as a theater director in Tokyo named Yusuke Kafuku. Kafuku-san's wife, Otto, played by Rika Kirishima, is a film and TV screenwriter herself, and their bond is both romantic and creative. Finding inspiration in their sexual activity, Oto tells Yusuke the stories that eventually become her highly sought-after screenplays when he relays them to her the next morning. The two seem like the perfect couple, but not all is as it seems. They lost their four-year-old daughter at a young age to pneumonia, and it becomes clear this has been a void in their relationship that's never been truly addressed. Additionally, Yusuke is aware of his wife's infidelity, 
unbeknownst to her, as he silently walks in on her having sex with one of the actors performing her work on TV, with a clear indication that this may not be the first time. Yusuke's inner turmoil about whether to risk the deep connection and bond he does have with his wife in exchange for absolution over his wife's infidelity is apparent. But one day, with the specter of a vague conversation that Otto would like to have with him when he returns home from a, uh, quote, teaching engagement, which was made up by him, Yusuke no longer has to make that decision for himself, finding his wife collapsed on the floor, dead from a brain hemorrhage where she lies. Fast forward two years and Kafuku-san is moving to Hiroshima for two months to become an artist in residence to direct a multilingual adaptation of Anton Chekhov's Uncle Vanya. Due to prior vehicular accidents during residencies, the hosts require Kafuku-san to forfeit driving his own beloved red Saab to be driven instead by a hired driver, Misaki, played by Toko Miura. Kafuku-san objects, of course, but ultimately changes his mind after experiencing Misaki's expert driving firsthand. Losing the autonomy of his own driving isn't the only twist, however, as one of Otto's lovers, Takatsuki, auditions for a role, amplifying his prolonged, him of course being Kafuku-san, his prolonged internal conflict about the context of his wife's death. Scott, I'll stop there and ask this. Does Drive My Car live up to the snowballing hype provided by nearly every critical outlet giving it best film of 2021? Or did something feel rather vacant and empty about this 180-minute drama that left you wanting more? Yeah, I was going to say, if you thought that synopsis was long, wait till you see the yeah. movie. That's, um, just, that's just the first third of the movie I just yeah. talked about. Yeah, I'm in two minds because it's like, I, I, normally I would be like, oh, there's some spoilers you just dropped there. But also, like, a lot of what you described is the prologue of yeah is before the title card the (laughs) The 45 minute of the movie so yeah take i still think that you should go into this movie as blind as possible now um hopefully you just maybe tuned out some of scott's description (laughs) there but um just because i mean i didn't know i didn't even know like the prologue you know what happens in the prologue when i went to well if you, if you look up any plot synopsis like even like a two sentence plot synopsis it tells yeah. you that his wife dies so i don't feel too guilty yeah, I'm, I'm not criticizing it but yeah, yeah. Um, like i said it is really just the prologue of the movie. but anyway um yeah scott uh you know obviously this movie had a lot of hype going into it for me i you know didn't get to see it for a while um we were talking about how much it's been you know, blowing up the critic circles, like you mentioned, yeah. it uh, is quite possibly the favorite for best international feature right now at the Oscars. And, mm-hmm. you know, there was even like a few murmurs of a best picture nomination. Now, I don't think that's going to happen um, just based on the nature of the movie. Sure. But um, the fact that, you know, th- this many people are talking about it in such high regard definitely got me interested, you know, combined with you giving a high praise, Hamaguchi having like two movies out this year that are getting high praise and now uh i've seen both of them and yeah this movie is an experience um again like i really think this movie should be seen in a theater it was kind of like i was saying with i think it was mass that i was saying we're like this is a movie where you really need to like you need the theater not because it's like spectacular visually or anything like that um but because you need that intimacy and like the focus that a theater makes you have um to really appreciate the movie because like that's the one that's the thing about Hamaguchi's style now after watching both wheel of fortune and fantasy and drive my car maybe it's just like the quietness of the you know the material like the 
atmosphere. Maybe yeah. it's just that the the dialogue he writes is so strong, but like you are hanging on every word in these movies. Like it really does feel like yeah. you, I can't remember like a movie where I just like had to pay attention to like every single line. Like I felt like I had to pay attention to every single line of dialogue. Um, so, you know, closely. And there's just such an air of mystery about the movie, even though there's not like, there's not like huge mysteries or anything that need to be solved or anything, but it's just, you get the sense that there are things that have gone on in the past that you don't really know about that these characters are, you know, holding in. And there are, you know, things that are going to happen in the future that we don't, we don't really know what's going to happen in the future. But, you know, for example, you set up that there's sort of this, um, thing that happens where Takatsuki, who's the actor that, um, that, Yusuke's wife was having a um affair with is now acting in his play and there's like a you know he puts him he casts him as Uncle Vanya even though that's not the role that he uh, auditioned for and so yeah. you get there's like there's just that tension there uh between the two of them and I think totally. the scenes between the two of them are some of the most spectacular scenes in the movie easily um again talking about hanging on every word those yeah. are the scenes where you know really again really quite suspenseful even though it's like quiet dialogue driven it's not that type of movie right where you're expecting some sort of shocking act of violence or no, you know even though there is a shocking act of violence but it happens off screen um which is just interesting but and is it shocking very late in the movie is it shocking? it's not i mean it's not shocking in the sense of who did it and the circumstances under which they did it i guess it's shocking the severity of it what ends up happening yeah with. that's true that, that is but fair. um but anyway that's you know i don't want to go too far down that route yet at least um i mean the conversation but, you're talking about the the scenes between them the conversation that they have in the back of the car i mean oh, that yeah. is one that's of the, the most scene in the movie. Yeah. hypnotic monologues i've ever heard i've ever like experienced in a theater yeah and again talking about just hanging on every line right because it's just it's so set, it's set up so beautifully because yeah there's like this story very early on that his wife tells him that yeah. just is kind of incomplete and like yeah. i said there's this air of mystery and then all of a sudden you know when takatsuki reveals that like there's more to the story and he knows it it's like oh wow okay this is something that you really have to lock into because it's all metaphorical right it's all it's all out you know it's all of sort course. of an allegory and so you want to make sure that you're paying attention to everything so that you're understanding exactly what is going on. Some for some people, like the patience of it will just be a turnoff, right? Some people sure. are just not going to be able to go with this movie. But yeah, I was completely absorbed by it. I felt this again, I felt the same way watching Wheel of Fortune and Fantasy. There's just moments where I was just like, you know, kind of lost all sense of time and place just because I was watching the movie so closely. Mm -hmm. um, and I think above all, that's a credit to to Hamaguchi's style again which is quiet meditative very dialogue driven sometimes to a fault i feel like I, I do feel like at times the dialogue maybe spells out a little bit too much um which is interesting because you know the movies are kind of quiet which you think is like the antithesis to that a little bit but there's one climactic scene which is the only thing which really kept this from being like a 10 out of 10 for me um and not that I can even really point to anything that was like terrible about it, bad about it or anything. But again, it was maybe that the dialogue, 
you know, spelled things out a little bit too much. And also like, again, because the movie is such a slow burn, you're like expecting these big emotional cathartic scenes to happen at the end. And I don't think I quite got what I wanted from one of them, but then there's another one, which I definitely did. But um, anyway, that's skipping ahead a little bit. I think it's also interesting as a piece in which Hamaguchi is like interrogating his own style, right? Like there's like a meta meta narrative going on i feel like we've talked about a lot of meta movies here recently but this is definitely one um meta in in a very different sense but yes absolutely yeah because you get the sense that like in these rehearsal scenes in particular for the uncle vanya play yeah the like things that we the process that we are seeing that yusuke Mm -hmm. has um you know, he has all these actors who have who are speaking different languages, right? He has one actress who speaks only in Korean sign language. Um, yeah. He has there's one actress who speaks English. You know, there's Takatsuki who speaks Japanese. I mean, it's it's all over the map. Um, and there's this whole thing about like, oh, um, we're just we don't want you to basically inflect or do put anything or really act any line when you are when we're doing a table read just read what is on the page right do not add anything to your performance and you get the sense again like i said that some of this is probably hamaguchi's own style in making a film and that he's you know some of of, it yeah well yeah you know what i mean but he's kind of you know (laughs) interrogating that and exploring his own experience and the experience of those in his orbit with that and that's (laughs) fascinating to watch and you know, again, extending that further, if you if he's if he's seeing himself as the Yusuke character, then, you know, there's obviously some interesting layers to that. But yeah, hypnotic, I think, is a good word for it. Um, it definitely cast its spell on me pretty early on. You know, these international movies like maybe a painting with broad strokes a little bit, but I just every time I watch one of the really acclaimed ones like this, it seems like I just I watch it like. I have no idea what's going to happen next in this movie. I don't feel like I've seen, I'm seeing anything else like this being made. Um, I just think if you are a movie fan, if you are a cinephile, you have to broaden your horizons and check out some of these movies. Cause like you are going to see stuff that you have never seen before. I mean, Parasite, obviously everybody's seen it now, but like that was a great example of a movie at the time when I watched it and I was like, I've never seen anything like this before. Right. And, and, that was the people got on board and they, you know, got hooked on it. It won Best Picture because people had never seen anything like it before. Yeah. Obviously, Drive My Car is not as conventionally enjoyable a movie as Parasite, but it has that same quality about it that I think if more people would just give it a chance, like Bong Joon Ho says, and ignore that, you know, one inch of subtitles or whatever, I think they would get something really unique out of um, the experience of watching this movie um, and so many international. Film. So I'm again. I'm I'm very grateful to have had the opportunity to see this in a theater. I think that that really amplified the movie. Uh, but I don't know that the movie really needs that much amplification from the experience because I think it's such a strong yeah. piece of work on its own that um, it's it's just hard not to admire for me everything that he's able to accomplish and that he makes a three hour film that is this quiet and meditative, but also so gripping and. I think ultimately emotionally fulfilling and rewarding. Totally. I mean, that that's actually one of the things I remember my, on my first watch of this. I think one of the things that I put in my review was talking about there's a line sort of midway through the movie where um, Kafuku Yusuke 
is talking about the experience of having Masaki drive drive him around and he talks about how the driving is so smooth and the speeding up and slowing down that you can barely feel gravity while she's driving and i'm just like sitting there in the movie and i'm like this character is just describing how i feel about watching this movie i mean pretty much it's you feel like you're just floating along not in a euphoric sense right like i feel like a lot of times when we're talking about we're like you know you're floating when you're watching a movie is like there's this just sense of euphoria about the whole thing um, that's not the sense that you get from this film but it's just so captivating i mean i don't i try not to throw that word around too much when i'm talking about movies but there's just something so captivating about watching the diet like the characters interact with each other and like you said it's it's it just leaves you kind of breathless the first time you're watching it trying to you know, hang on every word, right? Exactly what you're describing. I think that's a perfect way to do it. And I do think that the, the theater enhances it, not from a, a visual or or sonic perspective. It just, it totally allows you to lock in on everything that's happening. I, I completely agree with that take. I mean, you know, we're talking about other movies like Dune where you're going to get this just incredible theatrical experience, right? Like the 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 sound and the, and, you know, the visuals of the screen, like the huge screen are going to enhance it so much. And, it's more about the kind of like the movie, right? It's all about, it feels so much about the atmosphere being in the theater, watching this, this movie is all about the atmosphere. I think it creates for consuming that, that, you know, the, the, the movie itself. And, you know, I, I'm, I'm fascinated and extremely interested in any movie that um, uses the theater in a specific way to try to enhance the experience, whether that be visual, whether that be sonic or whether that be atmospheric and, um, this is certainly one of them. You know, you briefly mentioned, I don't want to be too repetitive with things you've already said, but you talked about sort of the meta nature of this film. And, and on a second watch, so if, after a second watch, I, mean, I feel more confident saying this because I have seen it a couple times now. And I'll be curious to see how I feel about this, you know, if and when I do watch it future times that I just feel like this is like one of the most spectacular pieces of ad, like adapted work that I, I've ever watched. It really is like one of those things where you really have to think about what Hamaguchi's doing. Like he's taking a Murakami short story, which many people are probably familiar with, like who are fans of Murakami. It's one of his more famous short stories, I think. Um, part of the collection of Men Without Women, I believe, uh, called Drive My Car. And he uses that as like part one of his story, right? Like it's not part one in the chronological sense of the movie, but like a part of the story. And then he adds in Uncle Vanya, which is not just there as 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 like a as a you know vehicle for the plot. It is it is there and meant to be interpreted as something something very particular about Uncle Vanya is happening. He is screen. processing his grief basically through this play and like yeah. the the uh, you know dialogue of the play and the, the themes of the play are yeah. like intimately Extremely relevant to what is also going on in his own life. Exactly, and then he has this. This third component, right, which is completely made up by him, or at least my understanding is that it is completely made up by him. And that is this this sort of almost like, you know, like musing story from Otto, who is Yusuke's wife, about a lamprey, like this sort of it is the psychosexual story about this woman who stalks um, a man in her high school and sneaks into his uh, like house in his room and has these visions of a lamprey, um, a parasitic eel, basically, 
on the bottom of an ocean who's stuck to a rock. And it's just one of those things when you like fully, I think, realize, at least when I fully realized and came to terms with the work that he was doing to adapt this short story, to adapt Uncle Vanya, and then to in, you know inject his own original content to that as well. And tying that all together in this package, this three-hour package, no less, um, and to have the effect that it does, I, I'm just like, it is just that, you know, sort of S-tier, God-level adapted work for me and, and how that really ties back together. It's just, you mentioned that there's, there's people, not, there's, like, there's no real directors doing what this, you know, making films like this film out there. And I'd say not only are there very few, if any, directors doing the kind of adapted work that Hamaguchi is doing with this particular movie, I'm not sure anyone does it as good as him. I think there are some other other adapted works that that are really strong and at the same level, but not in the same way, right? Like not taking multiple stories, fusing them together, writing your own stuff in and making it seem like it was this was the original story all, the whole time. Like he didn't do anything special mm -hmm. to tie this all together. It's just something incredibly remarkable for me about this particular way to adapt the, these different stories and into one cohesive unit. And I haven't, honestly, I just haven't stopped thinking about how incredible it is what, what he has accomplished with, with the particular screenplay here. Yeah. I think that's a good way to think about just how, yeah, again, impressive it is that he's able to, to pull this off. Um, you know, yeah. I have my thoughts about other adapted works that sure. are on a sure. similar level. But, Absolutely. Yeah. Um, I've made those thoughts very clear on many episodes of this podcast before. So. Yeah. And, and, and I think, I mean, one of the ones that I'm sure is at the top of your mind is something like Little Women. I, I think it is on mm -hmm. that level for me of just like really clever, totally. ingenious adaptations of work that, you know, it's not linear. It, it's not trans translating linearly onto the page or onto the from the page to the screen, right? Like, you know, Greta Gerwig is doing something particular with the adaptation there and, and evolving or morphing or transforming, however you want to think about it, right? And I think Hamaguchi is doing the same and even more um, in this case by by sort of, in, in a strange way, Frankensteining a story together that, you know, you wouldn't recognize as a Frankenstein, um, I don't think. So, right. really incredible stuff. Uh, that's, I mean, I feel very similarly about a lot of the other things that you've said. Again, don't want to be too repetitive there. I wanted to to just sort of, I don't know, ramble about how incredible I think the screenplay is. But let's talk about some of the performances. Um, let's talk about sort of the, I think it's safe to call him the clear lead of this movie, and it's Hidetoshi Nishijima, who plays Yusuke Kafuku. Uh, Scott, this is like the first time I watched this movie. This was a kind of performance where not only was a hanging on every word he was saying, because he does feel like this sort of black box of emotion at times. Like you can't, like, you know, he's feeling something and you just can't get at what he's feeling um, or you're not exactly sure what he's feeling. You're not exactly sure how he feels about other characters, you know, maybe one character in particular, but you're not sure what's going to happen there. And there's a particular um, reservedness, if that's a word, about the performance, which is true, I think, of, of many, if not all of the performances in the movie, but a particular reservedness that I think lends itself to that to that sort of breathless nature of the audience hanging on every word. Do you, do you agree with that? Do you think there's even more going on with the performance less? So what do you think? No, I do agree. And I think, again, some of this is what I was kind of talking about as maybe a slight negative is that sure. everything, because the characters are such blank slates emotionally, 
Yeah. They're, um, you know, what they are feeling has to be revealed through dialogue, right? Because they're not revealing it with their expression, their body language, these other yeah. tools that they or have. It's, or it's revealed in the, like, emotional climax of the movie, which has dialogue, yeah, yeah. but also other Which is well. heavily dialogue-driven. But, um, yeah, sure. but so, the you know, again, I, I mentioned that as a slight negative just because I think... Um, you know, because it, it it necessitates spelling out the themes and emotion, deep emotions of the movie through dialogue, um, which isn't always something I love. Um, but yeah, it's impressive because the the flip side of that, right, is because you know that the only clues that you are going to get to what is going on are found in the dialogue. Yeah. You then are hanging on every word of the dialogue, right? Um, and so I think you know, both of these actors, Hidetoshi Nishijima and Toko Miura, yeah. um, you know, very similar personalities, their characters are, um, again, similarly reserved individuals who seem to have a bunch of emotions pent up and, you know, are clearly haunted by these past tragedies for, you know, for Yusuke, it's what happened to his wife, but also what happened to their child, like you mentioned, Scott. Um, and yeah. then for Misaki, there's a whole thing about her mother that becomes important. But um, but yeah, so, uh, you know, they're, they're these like blank slate performances. Um, but like you said, like the way that they it's, it's fascinating to watch the scenes where they do open up because you just don't know how they feel um, yeah. until they reveal. So, like, for example, there's this dinner party scene where um, they have bought both go over to the house of, uh, One of the, the guy who is yeah. like running the theater festival, I guess. And yeah, I think, I think his name is Yahara. Yeah. And yeah. his wife, who is the lady that uses the Korean sign language. Um, and there at the dinner party is where Yasuke finally reveals after some time having passed how he feels about the driving. Right. And that's where he kind of goes into that. Yeah. you know, monologue a little bit that you mentioned in the start of your review, Scott. Um, mm -hmm. And But until then, you have, like, no sense for how he feels about the driving. Because obviously, when it's first introduced, he's like, no, absolutely not. I will not have a driver. Like, I will yeah. drive my own car. This is what I do. I learn the lines on my own, you know, yep. by listening to the tape and all that. Um, and, but then he opens up and reveals like that. And so it just, it, it, it leads to some very fascinating moments of revelation and of, you know, solving mysteries that I think are, it's effective. I mean, it's very effective performance work because the actors are able to keep that. Um, they're able to keep you so in the dark, I guess, or so uncertain about, you know, how yeah. they are actually feeling. And so it's, it, it's a genuine surprise. It's a genuine revelatory moment when, um, Yusuke does say, hey, no, actually, I think her driving is fantastic. And then again, across the, the way, you know, with Toko Miura's performance, she doesn't actually reveal really how she, her reaction to this sort of, you know, she's just kind of blank while he's describing how much of a fan he is of her driving. But then later when they're in the car, right, she opens up and says, you know, that she, it meant a lot to her, right, that he said that about her driving, because obviously it's something that is very meaningful to yeah. him just the act of driving and being in the car and everything and that's so important to the movie so that and it's really important to her to be as good as she is about at driving because it's all she has yeah yeah um 
so so right so there's there's a there's so much going on and i think the performers even though the particular approach doesn't hit for me a hundred percent of the time just because i don't always love everything being spelled out in the dialogue the moments where it does work i mean it's it's like a symphony you know crescendoing in perfect time and i think the performance work is really impressive like i said to clearly keep those emotions under the surface and which is what Ahamaguchi is asking them to do. Again, this goes back to the meta thing that's going on, right, about reading the script and not emoting, not, you know, putting anything on your delivery except for what is on the page. That is clearly kind of what he's told them to do here. And I think in that regard, they understood the assignment to use that um, to use that phrase. And so they deserve a lot of credit. Yeah, look, a couple of them understood the assignment, but maybe Masake Okada was having a hard time understanding the assignment as Takatsuki. No, I'm kidding. Right. Uh, maybe he probably understood the assignment. he was too busy with Janice, you know, doing uh, the yes. thing. But yeah. Janice Chang. Can't trust. Can't trust her. Kind of uh, like one of the few moments of like comedy in the, the movie. I think it's Chan actually, but when... Um, uh, I think it's Chang because I'm looking at the name right now, but yeah. Okay, I could have sworn it was Chan. But anyway, um, when they're driving, they're both driving in and... They like uh, Yusuke like looks over to the car next to him and he sees that it's yeah. the two of them in the and car. They speed and off. Is, you know, the first time, obviously, that it's been revealed that they're like, you know, hooking up or whatever. And obviously, yeah. it is, you know, he knows that um, you see, uh, Takatsuki has hooked up with his wife and everything. So it's all that. So there's just like a little comedic moment there. And then 15 seconds later, when they've crashed their car. Right. <laughs> yeah. And are late they, to the rehearsal. Yeah. After they sped off because they, I don't know, embarrassed to to be driving next to him on the way, making yeah. it clear what they were, weren't doing. I mean, who knows? Um, oh, so much conflict here, Scott. One source says Janice Chang. The other says Janice Chan. Oh, no. <laughs> I'm pretty sure it was Chan Scott. I am. Uh, can't trust. I the saw the sometimes. movie more recently. Yeah, That's true. I saw it three weeks ago now. So it's been it's been a minute. Uh, so Jan Janice Chan it is. I'll have to, I don't know sue wikipedia for false advertisement about a movie about a cast of a, of a film um yeah no i i i was so unsure about this performance kind of going back to what i was saying setting up my question for you about hitatoshi nishijima um but i do feel like that sort of reservedness of this particular character it works so well be, i think because of that prologue right because you have all of this turmoil you're sort of already aware of with this character about how conflicted he was about the knowledge sort of you know the forbidden knowledge that he has about his wife's infidelity and you know how much he's struggling with that or even before she dies right like you know how much he's struggling with do i say something about this and how afraid he is of the you know, ambiguous conversation they're going to have when he gets home that one night, you know, the night she ends up dying. I think that there's some real gold that is mined from how reserved this character is over the course of the film because there is a two-year time skip, but it's clear that it, that this act itself is some sort of, like, attempt at at exercising the demons of that you know that he was left with in Tokyo. That's why he's going to Hir Hiroshima. That's why he's going to do Uncle Vanya, a play that he was, I believe, supposed to do right before his wife died. 
Um, I mean, that was the lines he was. Well, he was doing it right. Like, don't we? Don't we see? Isn't that the play we see him doing in the beginning? Is, is that Uncle Vanya? I wasn't I'm pretty actually sure, sure about that. I'm pretty sure it is because I think he like isn't wearing the same makeup and everything like that he is towards the end of the movie. But maybe I'm just maybe things mushed yeah. together in my brain or something. No, it, it's possible. I'm not 100 percent sure. The, my only hesitation is that yet yes, you I think you are right about like the costuming and makeup and stuff. So that might be the ultimate sort of giveaway there. But the scene just looks so different. The one they show. Yeah, in, maybe in the play looks so different than what they're showing later on in the film when he's doing uncle vanya that I, maybe that's I was, a point though right because now he's he's a lot different than yeah, he was maybe. back then when he was doing it no i think that's there's definitely a chance that that is the case um re regardless i i do think that there's just some real um i guess i kind of lost my train of thought but there was there's some real gold to be mined there i think with how torn he is from the beginning in that prologue you know, to the end of the film when he's still wrestling with it as he goes through this process of adapting Uncle Vanya in this new setting, this new environment. And you know I think what? it's maybe he... it's perfect. Yeah. Sorry, go ahead. Sorry, I was just thinking, you know, maybe he's not doing it because it's pretty late on. Actually, it's after that scene, I think, where she actually gives him the tape right with the Uncle Vanya lines. So, yeah, I guess that wouldn't make sense if that happened after he had already done it, because the whole point is he listens to that to learn his lines. But yeah, no, that's a good point. Yeah, I think that he's going to Vlad. So he's going to Vladivostok in Russia to meet with with people about it. And I think that he's going to do Uncle Vanya in Vladivostok. I think that's yeah, that, what, I think that's, that's, the, that's the implication. Because I mean, Chekhov's also Russian, et cetera, et cetera. Um, I think Chekhov's Russian. And, yeah, he's Russian. Yeah, he is. And. This is like the whole point, too, is like there the movie is really also exploring like the passivity that this character shows. Right. Because yeah, his indecision. Yeah. I, well, yeah, because I, I mean, correct me if I misunderstood this. Right. But the whole story, the whole second part of the story that we see that gets revealed by Takatsuki in the back of the car is basically suggesting that his wife knew all along that he knew that she was having a, an affair. Right. Yeah. And because he never said anything to her, like, and basically was so passive and seemed like he didn't really care about it, that caused this kind of rift in her marriage that may have actually made her keep doing it and may have contributed, at least in his mind, once he understands this, in his mind, may have contributed to this brain hemorrhage that she suddenly has out of nowhere because she feels so much pressure about talking to him about it because he will not talk about it to her. Yeah. Um, so I think the movie is really exploring in interesting ways the pros and cons. Maybe that's a simplistic way of looking at it, but like the the virtues and the vices of like this type of emotionally withdrawn nature, right? Because obviously, you know, he sees the the negative side, the doubt, the negative side of it when you see that his wife was not wanting that from their relationship, right? At, at the very least, she was wanting him to be upfront with her and to actually act like he cared, right? About the fact that she was sleeping with other men instead of just going on like everything was normal. But also he obviously does really care. He just doesn't know how to express it or expresses it internally. That, and I think he's the way, so yes, everything that you said, I, I think that is accurate. And I think that fulfills the, the sort of, promise that is made by Otto asking him to have a conversation later that day because like the mm -hmm. heavy implication his fear is that it's about 
this infidelity that she's having. And then that's what the conversation is going to be about. And I think that that story, the like, sort of the, the fulfillment of that story completes sort of the fear, right? Like it, it confirms his fear that that was what she was going to talk about. And I think the heartbreak, like, you know, and the heartbreak of that, like the, the added heartbreak is exactly what you say, right? That the implication is that if he had just done the thing he was so afraid of doing and, and rather than living in fear, sort of lived in, in hope in a way, right? A hope that, that they could work through that, that, um, infidelity. Yeah. That it may, it may have saved your life. Obviously I think that's a still a big question mark. Who knows, right? Like it, the implication is that maybe this did contribute, but I don't think it's also, I, at the same time, I don't think it's saying that he is the reason that she did die. It's just that like, it's, it's a twist of the knife, right? Like he already feels yeah. like he's to blame yeah. and now he feels he's tormented by the idea that he might have had something. Exactly. And, and yeah. yeah, like, you know, it's even like, even if obviously, you know, she feels like he could, he should have said something sooner, but even if they were yeah. able to have that conversation on that particular day, sure. You get the sense that they probably could have worked it out because then he could have said, been like, no, I actually do feel very strongly about this. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Haven't can't, can't express it, whatever. And then, Maybe it would have been okay because, like you said, in other regards, it seems like they're a perfect couple. Um, like, yeah, at least professionally, creatively, or whatever, they like complement each other pretty well. Yeah, and I, th I think it's very, I think it's pretty clear from that prologue that the reason, and I, I mean, I guess he says this later too, if I'm remembering correctly. But like, the reason he didn't say anything was because he's so afraid of of driving her away, and and that things in their relationship either will no longer be the same or she will leave once he, she is confronted with like her wrongdoings. Right. And it's like this, the fear of losing someone is what pushes them away. Right. Um, which is not an original theme by any stretch of the imagination, but um, the way it's maybe played out here is certainly one that is enthralling if that's the right word to use. And I mean, Masaki has a similar story, right, of like acting passively in, you know, the face of this tragedy, right, where like she just doesn't intervene when her house is basically being destroyed and she knows that her mother is still in there. Yeah, let's just talk about that. Let's talk about Toko Miura. You've already given your thoughts a little bit about her. I mean, I think she's really wonderful. It's a, it's such an interesting compliment to... um. Hitotoshi Nishijima's performance because you don't have that background knowledge. Like we know what's haunting um, Yusuke, but we don't know what's haunting Masaki, um, at least not to the extent that it is haunting her or, or the context of this particular haunting event. And it's so interesting to see these two grow closer to each other, these two to share their past traumas with each other, you know, in in fleeting moments over time right like as you know they're at like the hiroshima bomb site right and there's a little bit like a few breadcrumbs released there for both of them it's the first time that that yusuke tells her that his wife died you know and she's talking about at the same time like how she came about coming to hiroshima to begin with right like that she had fled uh and you know an avalanche that essentially killed destroyed her home I don't know if she says that it killed her mother at that time. I think she may she may have, but it's sort of like they're they're sharing their origin stories with each other. And one of the things that I I think this movie intentionally does so well is that again you have the information, 
of what's going on with Yusuke, you don't have the information that's going on necessarily with Misaki. But like the their connection and what they share with each other over time feels like just so perfectly paced that it feels it does feel really natural, right? Like it feels like how these two people who are spending multiple hours a day together in a car would like how the ice would thaw between them, right? Like it feels it feels natural in that way. Yeah. And I think Toko Miura's giving a similar type of performance that you don't necessarily have that insight into and the like emotional catharsis that it produces at the end for me. Um, both in like the traditionally speaking emotional climax of the film, but also in the epilogue, you know, or the coda, whatever you want to call it, at the end of the movie, I just find that incredibly, incredibly rewarding. And and I think you get a you get a good sense of what you're going to get out of that character in that early on in the movie, in that scene that you're talking about. I shouldn't say early on in the movie, like halfway through the movie, early on knowing her when they're at um the sort of the the festival directors. Uh, or co one of the co-directors house and you're having that conversation that we've talked about a couple times already and you understand how important right these things are to her that she's not emoting even though she's not emoting even though she's not saying these things out loud that they mean a lot to her and i think you really i just love the way you learn about this particular character and how she plays that out over the course of the two hours um on the screen that she has or when you when you're you know post the prologue essentially yeah. And that's the thing, like the buildup of that is done so well. I was so into it. And then that last scene happens with them at the ruins of her childhood home. Right. And something was just missing for me. And I wish I could say what, again, the only thing I can mm-hmm. think is maybe just that there was too much, uh, like it all just Pent came up. pouring out in the dialogue. Um, maybe. And I, I wanted a little more of that mystery i guess to be to remain or for it to kind of be revealed in some other way than through you know just the characters very explicitly saying their feelings and and yeah i don't know the performances maybe were just like a bit jarring to me because they are so different from everything else that they're doing in the movie right like it is a moment where they all of a sudden are expressing emotion um yeah it's, it is time. this o- overwhelming emotional moment for the two characters it's the it's the point in the film where and you're I supposed wa- to feel that catharsis well yeah and i wanted it to be an overwhelming emotional moment for me yeah as like the the crescendo of this relationship and i just it wasn't quite that for me however the next scene right which is the actual uncle vanya performance with him on stage 100 percent was that scene uh i mean i thought that was tremendous yeah. uh, but it was just that like that last part you know that that like i said the crystallization of the relationship between those two characters that we have seen built up that just didn't quite stick the landing for me and that's the only negative i can really think to say about the movie yeah for for me i mean i feel differently i i thought that scene does produce that emotional explosion if you will that all that pent-up emotion and tension that's sort of stacked and stacked and stacked and stacked over the two and a half hours before it sort of leads up to it. It, it did work for me. Uncle, if anything, I actually think that the be, maybe because I'd already had that emotional outburst in the previous scene, the following scene is less impactful for me. I think though, if, if I'd had your experience, the Vanya scene would be more powerful, right? Like if I hadn't just felt drained after that moment um, on the hillside, I think that I would have had a similar reaction to the Vanya scene yeah. that, you, that you did. 
and again, I mean, the Uncle Vanya stuff, like, we see so many of these lines, like, at at various parts of the movie. Yeah. Um, just, yeah. like, you know, out, out of context, I guess. Not not that they even, not that they really give you a whole lot of context, even in this yeah. scene, because, you. I mean, you know, I didn't know Uncle Vanya. I don't know if you did either, but... Um, no. But I don't think you need to, because, again, it the lines themselves are more as they're being said are more about what we, what is going on in this movie and less about how they appear in the context of uncle Vanya. So, but then seeing all of those disparate pieces that we have heard read out over and over again on the tape by Otto, we've heard him rehearsing it or whatever, seeing it all come together in that last scene after he's had, you know, this, all these moments of realization throughout the movie. And it feels like, this is the final sort of cleansing experience for him to, mm-hmm. you know, finally just sort of express that grief and emotion in front of this entire audience, right? Through the, it, it he, he's able to do it because it is through the artifice of this play, right? It is not yeah. him actually having to bear his emotion. It is him acting that out through the artifice of a play. So it's a deeply personal experience for him, totally. but to the rest of the audience, they're just watching a play. And so it's, you know, it's, again, it's a win-win situation because he's obviously, he's not someone who feels that comfortable expressing his deep emotion, deep personal emotions in front of people. That's what got him into this situation in the first place, kind of. Um, yeah. So, and it's, and it's clear how afraid he is of, of that Vanya character too, like the place that he's going yeah, to have to go to. He doesn't want to play him. It's only when he like has no choice. It's either that or there's no play that he goes through with it. Um, but yeah, so that scene and just like the whole, you know, what must we do? We must live our lives. Um, oh, just great. like such a perfect summation of the movie. Um, so I thought that was spectacular. And the, the coda, like you said, with Misaki just kind of, it works again because we have now seen his big emotional like lifting of the weight from him um in that scene and so now i think we need the juxtaposition also of her having sort of the same thing right where she's just kind of driving very carefree she has her dog clear it's clear that the experience that she's had has also been this sort of liberating thing for her like it has for him yeah i mean i i wanted i was gonna save the epilogue if you will to the for the end of our conversation but you brought it up now and i kind of want to pick your brain a little bit more about it i mean she's this may not be as clear or maybe i'm just dumb but it wasn't clear to me on the first watching that she's in south korea she's not in japan anymore she's actually in okay. in south korea she's obviously driving a car that looks a lot like um use case car it's is not it not the same car like I well so that's my question was. is i don't know whether it's the exact same car i'm not sure that it matters whether it's the same car, exact same car or not. It, it is the same make and model car. It is the yeah. same red sob. The sob. I don't know if it's his or not. Um, that's not that's not apparent. And the dog, I think, is supposed to be the same breed as um the the festival director's dog, which they meet in the mm. house that she plays mm-hmm. with. Right. And that's, she's playing with him. Yeah. Yeah. And this movie is all, I mean, so much of Hamaguchi's work. We're not even talking about Wheel of Fortune and Fantasy, but this that film is about it too. Like, the, there's he's really obsessed with themes of how the relationships you have with people, be it romantic or otherwise, affect you for the rest of your life. And how the there's threads of all those that sit with you forever. I mean, some in really obvious, heavy, consequential ways, 
like you see with Yusuke and and the relationship with his wife, even though it's two years later, right? Like how that relationship was still tormenting him. I think you put it beautifully there. Um, but also here, right? Like how not the relationship between Masaki and her mother, which is the focus of most of the movie, but the relationship, this like really positive, you know, almost repairing relationship emotionally with Yusuke and with the festival, right? Like this, this relationship he had, she has with, with this production of uncle Vanya that's taking place has affected her life. She has like these mementos of it. Right. 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 And even, you know, she's moved to South Korea, which is where, um, the woman who who performs in Korean sign languages from she's bought this red sob. She's has this golden like I don't know if it's a golden retriever, but she has this dog that that's similar to the one she she played with at at her house. Um, like, do you read any more into that, or is it just sort of like closing the loop on uh, you know a, a theme that he's he being Ryusuke Hamaguchi is just really interested in. No, I mean, I think we've, uh, I think that's, we've said it here. I mean, I think that that is exactly what that is meant to represent in the same way that Uncle Vanya has been this thing that he, that, you know, yeah. uh, Yus- Yusuke has carried all the way from the end of his relationship with his wife through, um, you know, up up through this final performance of it. It has turned from, or it has, I mean, it has kind of been this restorative thing. Yeah. Like I said, this kind of like, comforting place where he can express the emotions that he is feeling yeah without really expressing them because it is all again and under this artifice of being in a play so i think those two things are linked yeah all right scott i know we're running long but i feel like we're doing the film an injustice if we don't talk a little bit more about takatsuki who i think is a sort of third central character to the movie you talked a little bit about how you really certain elements of the story arc really resonated with you the scene sort of his his final meaningful scene certainly in the back of of the sob with yusuke telling him the rest of the story that we were teased at the very beginning of the movie uh right like the opening scene of the film is her is them having sex and her telling him the story um or the first part of the story and that is such an important part of the film obviously but i want to focus in more on Takatsuki, because in many ways, he is another version of Yusuke. He's not a director, obviously, but he's working through the trauma of having a relationship with Otto, with having a relationship or struggling to have healthy relationships with women in general. I think this is a little bit more generalized, I'd say. But the theme of loss that these men have in the film, particularly losses of women and how it affects them, uh, is definitely relevant and is kind of holding up a mirror, I think, to to Yusuke in a way here. And I, I'm curious what your thoughts are a little bit more about this, about this um, Tchaikovsky character. I mean, I think he is like the agent of chaos, right? Because he is, yeah, he is the counterpoint to the He's way that they are living yeah. their lives, right? Yeah. He he is. I mean, the thing that Yusuke says to him, right, that is like the biggest criticism he gives him is like, you don't have any control, like you don't have control over yourself. Um, And and in this in the same way, like we've been talking about, like Yusuke is this hyper controlled, like, you know, figure like he has every every emotion and the way that he directs, you know, every emotion in his own life, but then the way he like directs 
the play is, you know, he wants to have complete control over, you know, every aspect really. Um, and so he, you know, use K is the counterpoint to that. Um, you know, he's just kind of womanizing. He's going from woman to woman, right. He's kind of just cavalierly doing that. And then ultimately what gets him into trouble and out of the movie is that he lets this, his emotion and, you know, his outward expression of that emotion get the better of him when he like yeah. beats up this photographer or kills him. Uh, this photographer who, or this guy who was taking, not a photographer really, but Just a, a random guy, guy who was taking yeah. a photo of him because he's a celebrity. Well, he because he's a celebrity, but also because he's like this scandalized figure he's who a has had a relationship celebrity. with an underage girl. Um, exactly. Yeah. And he chases him down, beats him to death off camera. But that ends up, you know, being the catalyst that gets him out of the play and puts it in a position where Yusuke has to do it or there's no play. So... I wonder if this is like Hamaguchi sort of trying to validate his own, like, again, style of being controlled, being like getting these sort of blank slate emotions from people, from characters and stuff um, mm -hmm. by showing the impulsiveness of somebody who does not have that kind of control. And it ends up sort of leading him into a path of ruin, I guess. I, that's the only thing I can that I would make of it, I guess, at this stage. Yeah, I guess I don't read that metatextual layer into to the same extent that I think you have. I think I view it more as these are the dangers in general of being someone who isn't processed, like, I'll, I guess I'll back up. It's a cautionary second. tale, maybe, right? It's, like, yeah, it's a, it, in part, it's, it's a cautionary tale. Another part is that I think it's showing you sort of two ends, right? Like between Yusuke and between... Two extremes. So, yeah, two, yeah, two extremes of this, of this continuum of, like, ways to process loss, right? Mm -hmm. Or trauma. And the best answer, if you will, is, like, somewhere in the middle. Right. And Yusuke has has done this thing where he has like traumatized himself over and over and over and over. And like to the extent that he may have even caused his ultimate trauma, he may have caused his wife's death. Right. Um, we'll never know. And on the other end, you have like you have um, you have Takatsuki, who is this person who is like so unrestrained that he got himself into a relationship with an underage minor like thrill like he is seeking the next high he's seeking the next thrill and he thinks he's finding it in these ephemeral almost relationships that he's having with individuals that that he even acknowledges mean nothing right the only way to know someone is to have sex with them is like what he talks about but it's not a knowing like mm -hmm. the, the knowing that he's seeking is not has not been fulfilled or like he has sex with these people and may, maybe auto is like is like the the thrill he's trying to chase again right like maybe that is the implication of of these of his like sexual impropriety and whatnot um throughout the film but he's but, not finding it there either right like he's not yeah. finding it being in that and way and he still seems kind of like jealous of the relationship that yusuke had with otto right even though he's physically sure. having her um and emotion and emotionally having her like he he well, has the story yeah. He has he has the other part of the story, but you know he, it still seems like he feels that there is something that was missing from their bond that Yusuke and 
sure. Otto did yeah. have in their relationship. Yeah, I think that's true. And, and that's why I, th I find the pairing of these two characters, you know, not 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 just drama to play out on the screen. Like it's it feels so rich and meaningful. Um, and I don't and, and I guess to, to finish the loop on what I was saying, I don't think that Hamaguchi in any part of this movie actually is trying to say that his method, like the meta level of this film, which honestly I haven't like I don't even, I feel like we've barely even scratched the surface of that conversation. Um, but like the meta level of this film, I don't, I don't even think he's particularly interested in saying that his way is the right way. Yeah, um, maybe. I, I think that what he's interested in doing is like, this is the way that I do it. And this it works. Yeah, this is the way. Yeah. And it works in this context, but that doesn't have to be the only way that it works. Cause what he's showing us, I think through these two characters is that, you know, maybe the real, the real truth and like self-actualization, however you want to put it right. Is like in the middle where you do open up emotionally and you do um, have this like cathartic release the space between in the middle. Big link right? later vibes. Yeah, sure. Yeah, exactly. Why not? Um, I, I do think that what he's saying, like he's I don't think he's saying his way is wrong. Um, I don't think he's not saying that his way is right, but I think he's not saying that it's the only way to do it. Um, yeah. And I think that his goal is just to show. It's not a way, vanity project. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah, I, I don't think anyone who walks away from this movie thinking it's like a, a like a self-promotional um, material. Like, I'm not really quite sure what movie you watch. Yeah, I don't, I don't um, think so. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I think what he is interested in saying is that like maybe the answer is is finding your own middle ground, right? And like Yusuke is able to find that, or at least we see him able to find that. And maybe Takatsuki finds that too, just not on screen, right? Like he doesn't find it quickly enough to present like to prevent his well his first downfall in having this relationship with an underage uh woman but his second downfall in, in beating this guy to death right like there's a lot of ambiguity with how his story turns out and so i do think that there's maybe more judgmentalness involved with that side of the continuum in this in this film but i don't think that he's i don't think any, uh, by any stretch he's saying that the way yusuke has handled his trauma is the right way to do it either i just think it's a really but, yeah. fascinating pairing but that there is value in it, right? Where some may sure. not feel that there is because sure. I think that's what those rehearsal scenes about are, are, you know, are all about again, because the actors are all sort of expressing consternation about this approach. And, mm -hmm. you know, he's very steadfast and yep. saying that this is the right way. And I think ultimately it pays dividends. Yeah, I mean, his persistence in everything, right, is is a constant throughout the movie. His persistence in the way he wants to direct this particular adaptation, his persistence in blaming himself for his wife's death. I mean, he's a very stubborn personality in that way. Um, but yeah, there's definitely merit in it. Um, it's not all right. It's not all wrong. And that's what makes him a complicated, interesting, fascinating figure for me to, you know, want to have gone back and seen again and... You know, as we sit here and talk about it, I'm like, am I going to go see this movie again? Maybe. <laughs> um, yeah, uh, it's, that, it, it's that good. It is. It is definitely of all the like three hour movie, you know, really long movies of the from year, last yeah. year. It yeah. is probably the it, I can't think of one that I feel more strongly that I would like to revisit. Like, yeah, yeah, I, I, I guess this is this is kind of the only one that I can really think of. Yeah, I mean, I don't know if you lump Dune into that category. I'm down to go watch Dune again whenever. I mean, Dune, but, yes, I will. Yeah. I do want to watch it again at some point, but I'm not, like, itching to get out. Sure, sure.
I don't think there's like deeper thematic, um, I don't know, caves to dive into with, with no. Dune, especially not as someone who like read the book who, you know, right. the, it's thematically richer in the book than it is the movie. But um, right. anyway, that's, this is not a Dune podcast. We've done that podcast already. Scott, anything else you want to, you want to talk about? Do you, I mean, do you want to talk some more about the meta level of, of this movie or should we, or should we call it quits while we're ahead? I think we're boring the people at this point. Uh, but I mean, yeah, it, it, it does say a lot that there's so much more that you can talk about with this movie, but I could talk about this movie uh, for three hours easily. Yeah. Love. This I film. know you could, but I think <laughs> we should not do that. Probably. Okay. Yeah. Fair enough. Fair enough. Fair enough. We, we already gave everyone a, uh 180 minute pluser we a did a couple weeks yeah. ago <laughs> a couple weeks ago we can spare them uh this time around scott all right what was your favorite scene or moment from drive my car yeah i mean we kind of mentioned the two i guess it's between that you know the monologue in the car where he reveals the other half of that mm -hmm. story um sure. which is to to you know i guess we didn't really say it, but it's still like ambiguous right it's still it's a mystery that never gets solved almost in a way like you you think it feels like Otto maybe has taken the last part of this to her grave, right? Because there's still like something missing from the end of that story, which I think is oh yeah interesting, definitely. Uh, and on this point, actually, this is a, a hilarious anecdote from my Q and A, or I think it's hilarious, and I think I might have even said this to you um, after the fact because I just found this so funny. He's talking about uh, so someone in, in my in my screen asked him <laughs> what the meaning of the Lamprey story is. <laughs> Which is just a hilarious just in question. general to ask <laughs> yeah. a director. Um, yeah, and he like coyly goes on this roundabout manner of like, you know, it definitely has a meaning. I think that it's really important to, you know, all three of the characters who are sort of centered around, you know, Otto and the and the two men in her life, and at least in the context of the movie, the story is really important to them. But you know, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna give myself away. You're gonna have to figure out what you're going to have to decide what you think it means for yourself, which I think is the right yeah. answer. Like, it just felt like such a silly question. It's like rolling up to, uh, to like, I don't know, F Scott Fitzgerald after he like writes, right. The great guys be like, what's the green light mean? Right. Yeah. Well, it probably means something. I'll let you figure exactly. it out. A little insulting, I guess. No, I, I mean, to be fair, I don't think the question was insulting. It was just like, it just caught every, I think caught like half the audience off guard. Cause we're just like, I, I think that like, you're you're very brave to ask that question to someone who's yeah. trying to be a, a like a capital S subtle filmmaker. I think mm -hmm. he's not going to he's not going to tap his nose and be like, "See me after." I'll tell you what it means. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah. So, did you decide your favorite scene or moment? Sorry, did you did you make a? Did you uh, make yeah, a I guess I kind of cut off in the middle of saying that, but yeah, yeah, it's that scene in the back of the car or the Uncle Vanya performance at the very end. I think those sure. are just the two sort of spellbinding scene of the year candidates for sure yeah i mean for, for me just to be different i will say that it, it is that like now iconic i feel like shot of them the cigarettes yeah of of toko mura so yeah misaki and yusuke in the front seat so the, the first scene where yusuke rides in the front seat of the car with her they're smoking right hold the cigarettes out the out the uh sunroof chef's kiss so good. Is it also the first time we see him smoking? Uh, no, no, no. He smokes quite a few times in the movie. Okay. At the very least, he also smoked at the when they're Hiroshima at the bomb site. Yeah, yeah, when they're at the beach, yeah. yeah. I think there's a couple other times as well, but um, okay. yeah. yeah, yeah, definitely not the very first time. But it is. Mm -hmm. It's not like always happening. It is like a. It is a rare, notable thing when he's smoking a cigarette in the movie. Yeah, for sure.
All right, Scott, out of 10, it's not a 10. You said it wasn't a 10.0. I don't know if you talked yourself into a 10.0 yeah. anyway, but what's the No, score? I didn't. I didn't uh, just because of that one scene. But I mean, there's just so much to admire and love here. It's a 9.5, and I feel very confident in saying that. Yeah. Uh, I'll, I'll drop a 10 bagger on it, whatever we're calling 10s these days. Uh, 10.0 for me. I, I was, I was kind of where you were, I feel like, after the first viewing and then the second viewing. You know, I, I, there's notable yeah. examples in the past. Uh, Parasite's one of them. Uh, I think Star- uh, Black Klansman was another one from a few years back. Uh, this is this is in that crowd of movies that I thought were very good the first time I watched it, and were even better on the second one. So much so that that it was it gets ten. It gets a ten out of ten. And I'm certainly leaving the door open for my me to feel that way too. That you know, my one issue to be cleared up on a rewatch. So yeah, yeah, yeah. All right, final final question out of the Scott. Are are you are you Gucci pilled? Gucci gang, Gucci gang, Gucci gang, Gucci gang. And yes, Wheel of Fortune and Fantasy is very, very good as well. I, I give a slight edge to this movie, but um, yeah, I have this currently at Drive My Car is currently as my 10. Ooh, and let's go. Wheel of Fortune and Fantasy, I think, is my 15 or 16. So I think I had it at 15 as well. So, you know, great great minds think alike, et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Um, wow. What a conversation, Scott. Beautiful. Finally, so excited to finally be talking about this movie. And um, I will say, as a final note, yeah. the last story of Wheel of Fortune and Fantasy, interesting crossover with Drive My Car, I will say. It was the best yeah. story in Wheel, Wheel of Fortune and Fantasy, yeah. but also there are just some interesting themes that link up, I think, with what's going on in Drive My Car. So there you go. I think they're, yeah, yeah, first off, too. yes, agree that the third scene is the best and there is some interesting link up. Also, think the second scene has some interesting link up as well mm-hmm. because there, you know, sitting in this classroom just reading a story like telling essentially just like making up a story right about stuff and i mean that is a lot of what we love uh, a lot of what drive my car is about as well yeah are we uh are we setting five hours aside sometime in the next few weeks to watch happy hour together are we doing that i don't know about the next few weeks but i want i definitely want to at some point i think i think it needs to it needs to happen because i i think there's probably a lot to be gained from that movie it just it just seems like something i would really like and obviously i really like his style now so yeah he he joked uh in his like remarks before the movie the first time i saw it when when he when he was there that uh quote we were we were lucky um that we were only getting three hours we only had to be in the theater for three hours because a few years back he debuted his five-hour film at the new york film festival yeah um and i was like you know lucky I wouldn't mind sitting here for a couple more hours and watching you do your worst um, because he's good at it. He's definitely good at it. Oh, yes. All right. Well, we'll stay tuned for a future episode uh, uh, where we talk about the five hour masterpiece that is happy hour. Uh, I say masterpiece. I don't actually know whether it is or not because we haven't watched it yet. But hey, maybe it'll come up one day. You know, I'm going to mentally note that when whenever we do watch this film, Scott, we're going to talk about it for five minutes and like part two of a podcast someday. (laughs) Okay, sure. Five minutes for a five-hour film. Anyway, that should do it Seems for right. part one, um, our discussion of Drive My Car. Let's take a short break. When we return, we'll be talking about new movies from uh, Bong Joon-ho. Came up earlier today already on the podcast, I think, once or twice. Um, and who is also a noted fan of Ryusuke Hamaguchi, I might add. Um, as well as Alex Garland, who both you know, he has a new movie that was just announced uh, today as of recording. Um, so we'll be talking about those after the break. We'll be right back.
Welcome back for part two of today's episode of Some Like It. Scott, as mentioned before the break, uh, we have a couple new movies to talk about. Scott, you want to talk about Alex Garland's next project. Absolutely, yeah. So Alex Garland, of course, director of Ex Machina and Annihilation, yeah. um, novelist as well in his own right. But he uh, he's going to be coming out with a new movie this year, uh, which we will probably be talking about at some point before the year's over, called Men. Uh, that stars Jesse Buckley and Rory Kinnear. Um, but he's already announced his next film as well, uh, which is going to be this movie called Civil War, um, which is described as an action epic, um, which is a little different, I guess, for Alex Garland. He's uh, mainly known for his sort of cerebral sci-fi films. Um, again, I mentioned the ones he's directed. Um, he's also going to be pairing with A24 for this. Um, I don't believe that Men is an A24 film, so this will be his first one since uh, Ex Machina, which was his uh, directorial debut. Um, and we have some cast members for this film as well. It's going to be led by Kirsten Dunst, who, again, is having a little bit of a comeback here. You know, she had The Power of the Dog, uh, Oscar-nominated role, getting a lot of good, or well, not yet, but it's possible, likely. The dunst yeah, the Dunstasance is is on. Um, so she sounds like she's going to be leading this movie, but in supporting roles, uh, we have an actor named Wagner Mora, who I'm not super familiar with his work. Looks like he was in Narcos, maybe. Um, but also a couple of names who I am familiar with, Stephen McKinley Henderson. Um, yeah. We know him from Lady Bird. We know him from Dune. Um, great character actor, Fences, he was in as well. Um you know, one of those guys that you're always happy to see pop up and stuff. Um, and then Kaylee Spaney, who maybe has gotten, maybe is more known for her TV work at this point for doing stuff like she was in Alex Garland series Debs. She was in Mayor of Easttown. Um, I mainly know her from films like On the Basis of Sex, where she played Ruth Bader Ginsburg's daughter. She was in this movie called How It Ends at Sundance last year. Really kind of the only good part of that movie. Um, but one of those actresses who I'm like, she needs to, she deserves better roles and better quality roles than she's gotten. So maybe this is something that um, will provide her with that opportunity. Um, but we yeah, Pacific if... Rim Uprising as her like notable credits. I mean, that's the, that was her first movie. Oh, yeah. So notable. Um, I guess you did see that movie, didn't you? So. I'd say more notable than anything else she's done. I mean, yeah, it's more notable than how it ends. I'll give you that. But um, yeah, which was a random Sundance movie that I think she's just I been like super minor roles in all these up. other movies that you're talking about, right? Like even yeah, Mayor what of was East her Town. role like? In, I was gonna say what was her role like in Rare of East Town because I don't even see that. I mean, she's like the less relevant daughter of of uh, Kate Winslet's character. Okay. Well, anyway, um, I'm excited to see her as one of like the first four names announced here. You would think that means that she's gonna have some sort of role, significant role in this. We don't really have a plot for this yet. Um, but, you know, again, written and directed by Alex Garland. He's an exciting filmmaker. Um, he's another one of these guys that is making really unique stuff. I, Absolutely. you know, am a big fan of both of his previous films, um, especially Annihilation. And I think uh, Men is definitely one of the movies I am really, really looking forward to this year to see what he can do with, you know, one of the best actresses right now with Jesse Buckley. So, um, yeah, Civil War should be a good one. Absolutely. I'm also excited about that as well. Definitely looking forward to talking about men and then um, also Civil War because, you know, who doesn't love a good Civil War, I guess. I don't know. Uh, other movies to talk about or other movie to talk about, I should say, 
is Bong Joon-ho, noted director, writer of Parasite, has his next film slated, and it's going to be at Warner Brothers, so he's not going back to Neon, who distributed his uh, Oscar-winning film back in 2019. Uh, But he is going to be teaming with Robert Pattinson for an untitled sci-fi pick at Warner Brothers. So, I mean, Warner Brothers it seems like they've scared off most of their other big name directors, i.e. Chris Nolan, et cetera, with their uh, day and date movie policy for 2021. But they have acquired Bong Joon-ho, at least for this film. Scott, right now, there's very few details, I feel like, about this film. It's mostly just that, you know, Bong and his Oscars are going to be working with Robert Pattinson and his, I mean, just really remar- remarkable arc of his film career is just something to behold. Um, at this point, but Scott, like just knowing that these names are working together and attached to the project, is that how excited are you about that? Yeah, really him and Kristen Stewart. It's interesting to see what they've done with uh, sure their post Twilight stuff. I was making the comment recently that, you know, when Kristen Stewart got snubbed for the SAGs, I was like, I feel like the actors are jealous of her because she went through franchise hell that like all of them are now stuck in. <laughs> and she came out the she came out the other end of it, and she is like now doing really interesting and yeah. you know buzzy projects and stuff. And Robert Pattinson is the same. I mean, he hasn't gotten hasn't had that snub yet, that big snub yet, like uh, Stewart did this year. But um, yeah, you know, just he's worked with Christopher Nolan now. He's worked with David Cronenberg on a couple of movies. Um, I mean, I know I'm forgetting a lot of filmmakers. Also, I mean, he's Claire, Claire Denis. He's worked with the Saturdays. right. He's in High Life. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, good time being one of his best roles for sure. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, it's not surprising to see him linked to another big name director. Like he is one of the it actors of the moment. And I'm sure that his stock is o- only going to get even higher after the Batman comes out in a couple of months. Because, you know, one of the most anticipated movies, if not the single most anticipated movie of 2022. So um, it's definitely up there. And uh, yeah, I mean, Bong Joon-ho, definitely one of my favorite filmmakers two movies in my personal top 100 so yeah um yeah full steam ahead i can't wait to see how he follows parasite and no i'm not talking about the hbo series with him and adam mckay <laughs> yeah i always forget people were like can't believe i just reminded you that was happening right yeah, yeah 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 i mean look the fact that that bong has agreed to it makes me feel like there has to be something about it you know what i mean I'm like so curious what he decides to do with it. Sure. But wow, they must they must be like flying like an and like a military air carrier of money to his home in South Korea to be like remaking so. his own film. <laughs> like is unbelievable. It's just I mean, look, I you're very hung up on Adam McKay. He's just producing. I don't I don't think it's that big of a deal that he's like he's he's also producing one of the best shows on television right now. So I, I'm not gonna knock him on his producing. But yeah, like keep that guy away from the writing and the and the directing. For for heaven's sake. Let him work in his little sandbox about J6, that film. I was hoping you weren't even gonna mention that because <laughs> that doesn't even deserve any airtime. And all of you SOBs who watch Don't Look Up are to blame for this. That's all I have to say. Yeah. Yeah, well. Say la vie. Anyway, sorry, back to the topic that we actually care about here, which is Bong's next movie. It is going to be based on an, an, a yet-to-be-released novel, which I think adds an extra layer of intrigue. Uh, the novel's coming out, I think, sometime in the next couple of months, actually, but it's called Mickey Seven. It's by an author. Um, excuse me. Uh, 
I gosh, I'm forgetting Edward Ashton. I don't know if if he's a famous author. Scott, I don't know. You you know, I feel like you know these things sometimes more than I do. Is that a famous novelist? Yeah. Okay. Um, but it's based on his upcoming book called Mickey Seven. Um, and the story follows um and Mickey Seven, who's the name of the lead character, I, I suppose, who is a quote expendable, who is a disposable employee on a human expedition sent to colonize the ice world Niflheim. So think like Norse mythology, things like that. Um, wherever there's a mission too dangerous, even suicidal, the crew turns to Mickey. I, this, I'm, I'm reading this from Deadline's article. Today. Michael Bay's Mickey Seven, yeah. <laughs> After one iteration dies, a new body is regenerated with most of his memories intact. After six deaths, Mickey Seven understands the terms of his deal. He understands the assignment and why it was only why it was the only colonial position unfilled when he took it. Um, that's that is the stinger for the book. That said, Bong Joon-ho, notable for adapting source material in very different ways uh, than their original. Wild and out. Yeah, so uh, maybe it'll be Mickey 6 instead of Mickey 7 who who makes this realization. My only question, what if there was a Mickey 7, Scott? Um, You know, what if there was a 7? What if they were the 7th? What if there's a Mickey 7? Yeah. Uh, hard-hitting questions that hopefully David and, Sims and, will answer. And going back to a movie that we were just talking about, what if there were men? What if there were men? I, you know, <laughs> real missed opportunity. I like it's a really it's a real shame that that came about like four minutes too late. I'll see if I can like cut that out and like put it in. What is with movie titles nowadays? Like <laughs> men, dog, yeah, lamb. Your like, favorite genre of film? Women. I mean, come on, little yeah, little women. Man. Well, there's women talking, right? Which is coming yeah. out the Sarah Polly Polly movie. Which, if you that's just like if you described if you asked me to describe my ideal film in two words, women talking. There you go, you did it. Good job, Sarah Polly. Scott Apparently likes women and he likes it when they talk. Movie, so. Well, they're not nuns; they're Mennonites. But yeah, it's yeah. going to be interesting. Don't be disrespectful to the Mennonites. They'll no, find out I where you live. Made sure to correct myself. They're not going to be disrespected. They're going to be played by Jesse Buckley, I believe, in a movie. So uh facts and francis mcdormand um yeah. an oscar winner and a future oscar winner maybe uh that's probably getting too optimistic about the oscars i take it back she better be that's all I'm say. <laughs> scott's gonna go on his own armageddon time mission if we're referencing another movie that's gonna come out uh later this what year what if there was a moonfall uh well, that's coming out very very much sooner than armageddon time but yeah uh, we can talk about that roland emmerich disaster piece in a couple weeks time but with that said, that should just about do it for episode 176 of Some Like It's Scott. Any other beautiful parting thoughts to leave us with the day other than what if there were men? Uh, I did watch a five-star film this week for the first time. Uh, Chloe Zhao's The Writer. Um, I don't know what took me so long to watch this movie, um, but I watched it for a movie watching challenge that I'm doing this uh, this year. Um, all I got to say is, Disney, please just unlock the prison. Let her out. Let her do what she wants because, my God, out. she's a great filmmaker when, you know, she gets to do her own thing. And actually, you know, I was talking about Red Rocket on our top 10 episode and Sean Baker and how he's like, oh, his style his like, you know, kind of like guerrilla filmmaking with like these, uh, you know, untrained actors and all this stuff is like mm-hmm. very unique. Chloe Zhao is the closest counterpoint that I could find to what he was doing. Like, obviously not sure. now after doing the Marvel movie, but like the writer and Nomadland are also these movies that have like, um, you know, the untrained, untrained actors that are looking at these specific communities of people in like the, 
margins yeah. of America kind of and exploring what it is like for them to live, not necessarily telling like very specifically defined stories, but just like what is their um, story like. And also the performance that she gets out of this guy, Brady Jandro in um, The Rider is insane. This guy, unbelievable. Um, and I'm going to be watching her other film, Songs My Brothers Taught Me, for the same challenge later this year. So I can't wait because I just am such a huge fan of hers. Scott, over under, you make it 26 weeks into this challenge. Over. I'm doing it this year. Uh, I remember that. I'm really year. excited. I've already picked out all the movies. I'm, I'm really excited, actually, about doing it. Last year, I think I just lost interest in the choices I made. I don't think that's going to happen this year. Oh, I, I hope that that is I hope that is true. You know, another filmmaker who is is notable for working with untrained actors. Uh, Ryusuke Hamaguchi, my man. Yeah. Yeah, there we go. Happy hour. I don't think has a professional actor in it. How about that? Um, more happy hour talk. This is the most airtime happy hour we'll ever get on any podcast, probably. Unless blank check does it does Hamaguchi for yeah for, for them or something i don't know uh anyway scott I, I look i think we can say that's it where can people find you on twitter letterbox and i guess serialized now i think that's the thing right hey yo yeah yep come check me out on serialized uh at scarvy dent on all of those platforms Awesome. And you can find me at shelton 2013 on all those platforms as well. You can find our podcast on Patreon at www.patreon.com slash mediaplugpods. Support us if you can. We'd really appreciate that. Um, there's a bunch of different tiers. Check them out. If you don't choose to support us, that's okay too. You can still find us on any podcast service where you listen to your podcasts, where we hope you can rate, review, subscribe, share, etc. Uh, so we can keep reaching that broader audience in year five. We really appreciate all of you for taking time out of your day to listen to us chat about Drive My Car. We'll be back next week with a recap of the movies we saw at this year's Sundance Film Festival. That's happening right now. I watched my first Sundance film last night, Fire of Love, a documentary about two volcanologists who died in 1991. Scott, when's your first movie? It's going to be Sunday. I've got uh, Watcher and the one I'm so excited for, After Yang, Coconut Hive, Rise Up. Yeah. I'm very excited about After Yang, uh, watching that on Sunday as well. We'll be talking about all the movies we saw. Well, not all the movies. But we'll talk about our favorite movies we saw at Sundance uh, this time next week. We might have a guest on that if we can manage it. But until then, for Scott Harvey, I'm Scott Shelton. We'll see you next time. What can we do? We must live our lives.